happy 2020. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> What's going on? Other than uh, we got to witness a pretty cool Carmelo moment last yeah, night. Yeah, no. Um, that was a crazy game. A potentially embarrassing loss for the Blazers, who were desperate for a win and were going up against basically Kyle Lowry and a G League squad, and trailed pretty much wire to wire before Dame Lillard absolutely went off in the fourth quarter, and then Melo, as you just mentioned, buries a game winner from about the free throw line. Quite a moment for him, a much-needed win for the Blazers, and honestly, another pretty impressive showing from the Raptors, given the cavalcade of injuries that yeah. they're dealing with. Add Fred Van Vliet to the list with Norman Powell, Marcus Gasol, and Pascal Siakam. Um, hope to see that team get healthy sometime soon. Yeah, but we're not going to talk about them today. I just wanted to say Carmelo Anthony the way the Knicks uh, PA guy used to. Yeah, um, I, but I mean, it is kind of maybe a natural segue to talk about some other injuries around the league because there are a bunch of teams that are really banged up right now. And why don't we start with Blake Griffin? Because oh. it seems as if his season is probably over. He is undergoing now an extended phase of rehab after having knee surgery. And this is just tough because he's coming off what was maybe his best individual season last year and one in which he was healthy pretty much the entire year until until the the playoffs. So not only does he not get to really see through that incredible all-NBA campaign in the postseason where they just get romped by the Bucks because Blake can barely walk. But now, that's carried over into this year. He played, I think, 18 games and was not good. He was a shell of himself. And now, you know, he's going to be a year older and coming back from knee surgery. And I think it's just entirely possible that he won't ever again reach the levels that we saw from him last year. And for the Pistons, of course, I mean, this is just another in a long line of disappointments uh, where this team has kind of been stuck in no man's land for so long. Blake Griffin was their big all-in move where they're trying to not only generate some fan interest for a struggling team and a struggling market with a new arena that they can't fill. Now Blake Griffin is out of the picture. So let's just talk about what, what this means for Blake, what it means for the Pistons, we can get into talking about Andre Drummond and whether this makes it more likely that they might look to move him, whether they're going to be able to move him, if there's a place for him to go. Uh, where do you want to start, Cash? Yeah, I'll run through, I guess, all those things. We'll start with what it means for Blake. You know, you, um, you mentioned that we might never see him again at that level. I'd argue it's likely we will never see him. You know, forget maybe. I, I don't think we'll ever see him at that level again. This is... Um, I can't double check it yet because the score's internet is down right now. We're waiting for it to come back up. But I believe this was his fourth knee surgery. At, at least his third, but I think his fourth. He'll be 31 by the time next season starts. And I don't maybe he comes back this season. I doubt it, but maybe he does. But say he doesn't, and he comes back as a 31-year-old with three or four knee surgeries you know, on him. And we already kind of saw that he was starting to lose a step even this season. I just think you have to accept for a guy that's game was predicated on explosiveness. We're probably never going to see that guy again. And it really is a shame because it's not like we're talking about a guy, you know, where it was like, oh, remember what he was like four or five years ago? As you mentioned, he had maybe his finest season just last year. What he did for that mediocre Pistons team in dragging them to the playoffs. And I know it's not like they were a great team in the end. It's not like he dragged them to 50 wins, but even just dragging them to the playoffs. And yes, even in the Eastern Conference was so damn impressive the way he did it. He had a very great season all around on the offensive end as a scorer, as a playmaker, very similar to that year in LA when Chris Paul got hurt. And Blake had what at the time was his finest season and, you know, got in the MVP mix and he was kind of like a point forward. He did that for the Pistons, essentially, for an entire season. And the roster was very flawed and he dragged him to the playoffs. And then, unfortunately, he had nothing left to give by the time the playoffs came. His knees were shot. That carried over this year. He's had this procedure. For the Pistons, you know, I will say that while I understood the move for Blake Griffin and I got it, you know, this is a team that was stuck in the middle that just needed to fill some seats, to be honest with you, and two home playoff dates for them is gravy. If you remember at the time, this was a concern. You know, many smart basketball minds, many pundits, many 
casual observers looked at this and said, Oof, you're going to take on that contract with his history of knee issues and you know when you're not really one piece away from contention anyway. And those chickens have come home to roost, so to speak, because you're now looking at that worst case scenario where Blake Griffin is owed a lot of money over the next few years and we've just kind of agreed that he'll probably never be what he was. The one... I don't think there's any positives in this situation, but we both mentioned them being stuck in the middle for eternity, right? Like, they haven't really had a high, high pick since Darko. I think the one silver lining here, if you want to find one, is that this team now should be bad enough to potentially get in the mix for a very high pick. Now, the counter to that is that they might have a high pick and what's looking like not a great draft, right? And it's like typical Pistons, they missed the boat, but it's better than nothing. And honestly, that's... Even then, you're hunting for a silver lining, but you got to find one for this team, and that's the only one I can think of, is they're now better positioned to just completely go in the tank, even if they don't want to. And it does seem like they're willing to move on from Drummond, and that'll, if they can do that... I mean, Drummond has basically said that he's going to opt out and become a free agent anyway, so whether they trade him now and manage to get something in return, and again, we can talk about what they might be able to get back. I don't think it's going to be a ton, but... Even if they don't, you know, if they're not willing to reassign him for big money in the offseason, then their cap sheet's going to look a lot leaner going forward. You mentioned the money is still owed to Griffin. It's it's thirty six million next year, and then he's got a thirty eight million dollar player option for twenty twenty one twenty twenty two, which I think we both expect at this point that he's probably going to pick up. But you know, apart from that, they they don't have a ton of long-term commitments on their books. And I guess we'll see what happens with sort of the young guys that are going to come up for extensions, whether they pay Luke Kennard and how much that's going to cost. I feel like they'll probably have some impetus to retain him, given that he's basically, he's not a star or anything, but he is really the only solid rotation player that they've managed to develop over the last few years. He's their blue chip prospect. Which is tough, you know, especially given that he went one spot before Donovan Mitchell. But uh, <laughs> oh, man, sorry, sorry for the pause. I just had to throw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> and I mean, you know, uh, Seku Dumboya, who's who started to play a little bit more, you know, in the last few games now that Griffin is out. Ask Tristan Thompson about him. My God, not like, all up in his face. <laughs> One of the nastiest dunks that you will see all year and maybe ever. Uh, he's got some crazy bounce. He's obviously still super raw, but he's very, very young and. I think you can see the outline potentially of a player that I don't know if he has a chance to grow into like a real franchise cornerstone, but I think he definitely has a chance to be a big part of their rebuild and is maybe one of the guys that they should be looking to kind of build around and kickstart a rebuild with. So let's talk about Drummond. There there are reports that they are at least listening to offers on him. And I think, you know, given that they're going to be without Griffin almost certainly for the rest of the season. Given that Blake is, like we said, probably not going to be coming back in anything resembling the form that he was in last year when he really had to be spectacular to drag them into the playoffs. It just, I think, makes all kind of sense for them to try and find a trade partner for him while they can because it doesn't seem likely that they are going to re-sign him this offseason or should. (sighs) It's really tough to find to find a place to move them where they're going to be able to get anything, you know, anything real in return, because, like, you're getting him for half a season. You don't know what it's going to cost to bring him back. Yeah, he's not picking up that twenty-eight point five million dollar player option for next season when he's going to be one of the top two free agents this summer. Right. No, he's on record saying that he's going to be a free agent right. in the summer. And yeah, like you mentioned, it's a barren free agent class. So I think he would be wise probably to opt out. I think that, you know, a team that's looking to make a move like that to get a guy for what may only be half a season has to be a team that is close to contending, where he is sort of the the piece that puts them over the top. And I just can't find a lot of teams around the league where Drummond is the guy that really puts them in that spot. Where, where there's a team that's close enough and they need somebody like him in order to really get into the mix for championship contention. I just, I don't know that that team is really out there. Like maybe, 
Like, could the Clippers potentially cobble together enough salary to make it work? Does, does he make the Clippers? Like, I think, you know, their biggest weakness to me is interior defense. Yeah. And he's not the greatest rim protector in the league, but he's, he's pretty good. But he's certainly pretty solid. And I think he's become a lot more versatile as a defender. Like, the Pistons have really used him, kind of like bringing him up high, using him to trap, to string out pick and rolls. And he uses his hands exceptionally well. Like, I think as a pick-and-roll defender, he's actually quite good. It's more just like as a backline rim protector, he's not as great, I think, as his physical tools would suggest he should be. Um, and he's really like kind of a defensive playmaker, right? Like, he'll rack up a lot of steals, a lot of blocks. And for a team in the Clippers that right now is relying on, you know, Ivica Zubac and Montrez Harrell, who's been great, but... You know, do you feel comfortable having him kind of as your closing center when, say, you're going up against the Lakers in a playoff series? Maybe not. What um, about the Celtics? Because I mean, I, I with I, the Celtics, I've thought all year, and I'm not the only one, obviously, that thinks if this team had a legitimate big man in their rotation, they might be able to like threaten for real in the East. Now, with Drummond, the Celtics, is like, who do you trade? But that that was that's what I was gonna say. I think Drummond, if you plugged him in to that Celtics lineup could actually help the Celtics more than he can help a lot of other teams, maybe more than any other team in the league. The problem is, who do you give up to get Andre Drummond? Because the salary matching would suggest that Hayward would be the guy. But a couple problems with that. One, I don't know that swapping Hayward for Drummond makes the Celtics better. I think it does. I don't think the Celtics would do it, though. But what is that doing for the Pistons? Like, they're going to have to attach an asset to Hayward in order to get that done, for it to make sense for the Pistons. And, like... then I really think it's a bridge too far for the Celtics. Like, I just... They really value having playmaking on the wings, like having off-the-dribble playmaking basically at every position. And honestly, like, their defense has been fantastic all year. They've really managed to survive with the center rotation that they have. Daniel Tice has been surprisingly good at that end of the floor. And, and they've succeeded by going small in a lot of scenarios. And I know a big concern for a lot of people is like, oh, you get into a matchup in the playoffs with the Sixers then what do you do? And like, I don't know that Daniel Tice can hold up as your full-time five in that matchup. And you certainly can't get by downsizing with like Jason Tatum or Grant Williams at the five when you're going up against a behemoth like Joel Embiid. So in a, you know, if you're looking to basically tailor your roster to that specific matchup, then maybe you look at it and say, yeah, we, we should make a move and get another big man. But like, also, Embiid has absolutely owned right. Drummond for his entire career. So. Right. I definitely don't think they should be making a move for the sake of like matching with Embiid if Drummond's on their mind because that, that ain't happening. Um, yeah, no, I, I just think it's very tough to construct a trade involving Andre Drummond that makes a team better by enough of a margin that trading for him for half season's worth it, right? right. Like, well, so then you get into like the teams that aren't really competing this season but that would likely be looking to lock him up Long term. Atlanta is the team that's been reported to be interested in him. And look, I mean, I don't think there's any denying that Drummond would be a great pick and roll partner for Trey Young. He would certainly help stabilize their defense, which has been terrible all season. I I mean, I can kind of see it, I guess. The big question to me there is like, what does that mean for John Collins? Right. Because... Who has far more upside than Andre Drummond. Ah, far more? Like... I don't know. I like. I, I feel like Collins might be relatively close to his ceiling right now. So then, yeah. So what are you insinuating? They if they were to get Drummond, you maybe see what you can get for Collins and see if you can supplement like a a Trey Drummond partnership with whatever you get from Collins. Cause you yeah, probably maybe. Get, you know, a, a fair package for John Collins, who I think teams would still value as a guy with some upside. Yeah, and like then you know you're basically instead of extending Collins or re-signing him you know, once his rookie deal is up, you give that money instead to Drummond and you offload Collins and let another team pay his second contract. Because I just think like right now, Collins is essentially that pick and roll dive man who's playing with Trey Young and he can stretch it out a bit. But I think what would end up happening if like you're playing him and Drummond together is because Drummond doesn't space the floor at all, you end up using Collins essentially to spot up around Trey Young, Andre Drummond pick and rolls, and I just think that's not the best use of his skill set. 
And then defensively, I don't know how that front court really works with those two guys. You have John Collins playing the four, mm. chasing guys out on the perimeter. Like, it's not a great It's 2020. You can't play those guys together. That's what makes it tricky, I think, for Atlanta. But maybe, yeah, if they, if they can get Drummond in, re-sign him, and somehow offload Collins for, like, a 3 and D wing, then maybe they're in pretty good shape. But I, so I, I don't know what kind of trade package works for Detroit coming back from Atlanta. Like, for one thing, like what is the salary filler that is that is making that deal work? They have who Evan Turner, I guess. So that would yeah. be a big part of it. Evan Turner and Jabari Parker, and like a pick. Yeah, Evan Turner is an expiring contract. Chandler Parsons. What and what? Yeah, what? Sorry, what's Parsons got on his twenty five point one. Okay, so they're like Alan Crab. Yeah, I get. Wow, that's you know what they have a lot of a lot of dead contracts they yeah. can send out as ballast. I don't know. I guess you know what would it take as far as assets that you'd attach to those. I mean, contracts? there'd have to be a first rounder, mm-hmm. right? I don't need to one first rounder. Is that getting it done? Maybe not. Maybe you need multiple first rounders. But then, see, then you get into even for Atlanta, where I think he fits and he'd be a great partner for Trey. Like I. I don't think he's revolutionizing that team to the point where, like, I, I don't know, are you giving up multiple first-rounders for Andre Drummond? I wouldn't be. Exactly. But, neither and, would I. And, and I would even go so far as to say, like, if I'm Atlanta and you're putting a first-rounder on the table, it can't be a 2020 first-rounder. No, no way. Because right now they have the worst record in right. the NBA. They're on track to snag yeah, basically the top pick in the draft. So I think that's a non-starter. If you kick the can down the road, like you say, is twenty twenty one far enough down? Are they like you know we'll be we'll be good enough with Drummond in the fold in twenty twenty one? Another year of development for Trey Young, who is on you know a, a mega star track at least as an offensive you like player. Like top five protected or something like? Yeah, top five. I, I mean, and then if you're the Pistons, are you like okay, we're looking at maybe getting a pick in like the six to twelve range? Is that enough for them? I don't know, man. This, the more the more we talk about it, the more depressing I realize this situation. Like I already knew the Pistons' situation was depressing, and it would be tough to offload Drummond midway through the year. But yeah, the more you talk about it, and like you start looking around the league, you know, I thought Boston's a great fit, but I don't think they they can make a deal work that makes sense for them. I think Atlanta's probably maybe the best long term fit for them. But again, it's like how do you make a deal work? It's tough. We we might. I I think it makes sense for the Pistons to move them. And I think it's best for him to move on. I don't know if it's going to be feasible this season. And if it's not, then you're really looking at a depressing situation where like Drummond will rack up his 2020s and it'll be kind of empty and the Pistons will lose a lot of games and, and he'll probably be very frustrated and and they'll just have to ride this out for another four months. Yeah. I, one thing you can say about the Hawks, they're I think the worst defensive rebounding team in the league. So Drummond would certainly help them in that regard. Charlotte, I guess, is another team that you could throw into that mix. Like the Hornets and the Hawks are two of, I think, five teams who project to have uh, meaningful cap space this coming summer. Devontae Graham's Charlotte Hornets. And again, I mean, they, like the Hawks, are probably not going to be making better use of that cap space than they would be just by signing Drummond. And I think that could be a fit. Like another team where... You have a dynamic pick-and-roll point guard who, with a, a similarly dynamic pick-and-roll dive man, could have you know, a really potent two-man combination. Um, I think the Hornets would have to have some measure of certainty that they could re-sign Drummond, I guess, in order to dive into something like that. But this is another team that has a ton of deadweight salary that's coming off the books at season's end and a lot of easy ways that they could match, whether it's Biombo, Michael Kidd Gilchrist, Marvin Williams, uh, Marvin Williams. That's 45 million coming off the books in those three. Yeah. Teams. And then there's Batum who like, you could basically do a straight up salary swap for, but I think the Pistons might blanch at that because he has that player option for next year. $27.1 million player option. So that might be off the table, but I think they could cobble the salaries together and then, probably have enough fringy prospect type guys that they could attach to make it somewhat worth the Pistons while like I don't know I mean Malik Monk and like a protected first rounder do you think that would get it done maybe 
um, or like Miles Bridges. I wouldn't I don't, personally I don't know if I'd want to get rid of Bridges. I wouldn't want to give up on Miles Bridges this early. He, I think he's been kind of disappointing this season. Like I picked him as one of my breakout players at the start of the year, and he really has not been that. I think he's been a little better than last year, but uh, in terms of the impact metrics, certainly he has been very poor and hasn't really made any meaningful strides as like an off-the-bounce playmaker or as a defender. So, But again, I think he has just great physical tools. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to throw him in the deal. Malik Monk, I'm a little bit more prepared to cut bait on at this point in time. But again, I don't know if he has enough perceived upside to entice the Pistons into making that sort of deal. Um, the, the Hornets, I think, certainly are a team that, that Drummond could help. And unlike the Hawks, they could look at that as a deal that could actually help them this season because they're only two and a half games out of a playoff spot right now. And the team that they're chasing for that spot in Brooklyn is sinking like a stone. They're free-falling. So... I think the Hornets could look at that and be like, you know what? We could actually push for the playoffs this year. And in their first year post Kemba, I think that might mean a lot to them. Yeah, it might mean a lot to them. And like they've discovered a potential, I don't want to say franchise player, here, but like a legitimate building block and foundational player in Devontae Grant, who has squarely found himself in the conversation for most improved player. Like he's been unbelievable. Top he, two candidate in my opinion. He might be an all-star. Yeah, I, might would build, be. I, I, I don't think he will be, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's crazy to say that. And imagine if someone had told you in October that a guy named Devontae Graham on the Charlotte Hornets was going to be a potential all-star. So I don't think I watched a single minute of Devontae Graham's NBA career before this. No, season. me neither. Like, that's what I'm saying. Imagine if someone had told you this guy would be like the guy that emerges in the post-Kemba world. So, yeah, I think absolutely. In your first year post-Kemba, if you found, you know, a legit building block of a guard, and if you can find a trade for Andre Drummond and then keep him long-term, and, like, that's kind of your your starting point for whatever this build, rebuild, whatever you want to call it is, I, I think you have to be pretty content if you're Charlotte. And I get that there will be people that roll their eyes at that, and you know, because it's not sexy, but as we've said before, like, not every team, not every market can... Enjoy the luxuries of, you know, the Miamis and the LAs and even the the Brooklyns, I guess, and the New Yorks, where like you can dream about those bigger free agent years or whatever the case may be. Like if you're Charlotte and you come out of what looked like the most depressing situation in the NBA, and within a year, say, you have Devontae Graham and Andre Drummond carrying you forward, like th- that's fine if you're Charlotte. I get that it's not sexy, but that's actually fine. I agree. And again, like they're going to have all this cap space in the summer and nobody really to spend it on. I guess maybe you can make an argument that they could just wait and then sign Drummond outright because they're going to have that cap space. Atlanta, I suppose, could make that same argument. But again, I think, you know, if there is one of those teams that would be looking to get him now because he can help them in the short term, and Charlotte certainly fits that bill more so than Atlanta does. And maybe... And again, I don't know if the Pistons would be down with this at all, but if Charlotte could, say, send out a first-rounder this year that they lottery-protected, so you know they can essentially say, like, if this works and we make the playoffs, then we're okay giving up the pick. Not a big yeah, deal. The 15th, and if it pick. doesn't, we keep the pick and we defer it for you know 2021 or 2022 or whatever it should happen to be, however you want to sort of stagger the protections and you end up minimizing the potential damage that way. But I think the bottom line here, and just talking about all this and the teams that might be interested in and what those teams might be willing to give up, is just that the the Pistons are kind of between a rock and a hard place here in that they risk losing him for nothing, but it's also probably going to be a hard pill for them to swallow to to trade him for what is not going to amount to much of a return, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The trade season so far has focused mostly on two guys. Drummond is one of them, and the other one is Kevin Love, who has publicly agitated for a trade. Um, He hasn't come out and said he wants to be traded, but there was a report that he and Kobe Altman got into a screaming match over the state of the Cavaliers. He has been demonstrative on the court about his displeasure with his teammates. Uh, There was that play that Zach Lowe has delighted in pointing out when Kevin Love just took one of the most obvious three-second violations you'll ever see because he was so frustrated at not getting the ball against a mismatch in the post. 
more recently, he was upset that Colin Sexton waved him off and didn't give him the ball. So when he finally did get the ball, he whipped a pass. And even on that play, at Chetty he Osmond's had, head, he had a clear mismatch in the post, and his coach and his young point guard, instead of wanting to get him the ball in the post with that mismatch, wanted him to come up and set a screen instead. Yeah. for Sexton. Uh, and then yeah, that's why when he got the ball, he then whips the ball over like. Um, and so he has now since come out and publicly apologized for his actions and had actually a great game against the Pistons last night, dropped 30 points on, I think, 12 of 16 shooting, and I guess seems to be making more of a committed effort to play ball with the Cavs, which presumably will help them trade him because you know, the kind of way that he was sulking on court was not obviously improving his trade value. So I think if he really wants to get traded, the best thing he can do right now is put his head down, play well, and at least publicly make a show of being a good teammate. I don't know whether that's going to make much of a difference at the end of the day, because I think sort of similar to the Drummond situation, it's really hard to find the team that is going to be willing to put meaningful assets on the table to get Kevin Love. And this is somewhat different from Drummond, I guess, because with Drummond, it's, well, what are we putting on the table to get a guy who we might not have beyond this season? And with Kevin Love, it's, what are we going to be willing to put on the table for this guy who we're going to have to pay through 90, $90 million to over the next three seasons after this one? 91.4, to be exact. And to me, the big issue with Kevin Love is, like, defensively, I just don't think he has a position that he can guard credibly. Like, he doesn't. You don't really want him chasing stretchy power forwards out on the perimeter because he doesn't move his feet well enough and he's certainly prone to blow-bys. But if you stick him at the five and then he's like your last line of defense, he can't protect the rim. So, you know, on the one hand, I guess his rebounding, he's still an excellent rebounder. Like his rebounding allows you to downsize and get away with it on the glass. But just like as a backline defender, it's not really tenable to have him playing the five. So I think like you're kind of damned either way defensively uh, unless you just have like a ton of rangy help defenders who can basically help cover for him at that end of the floor. But either way, I, I just think it's hard to slot him in without compromising your defense. Yeah, I think he'd be best served beside like a very clear-cut, defensively dominant five, mm -hmm. right? And then you almost don't have to worry that he doesn't have a defensive position because he can just stretch the four. Uh, he can be a, a stretch four mm -hmm. and not really have to worry defensively. Now, can you find a team like that that would also be willing to take on Kevin Love for the next three years at $91.4 million? It's very much easier said than done. Yeah, that's really where you get into problems, I right. think. And. I don't know. Can you think of like any teams that really jump out as potential destinations for him uh, that could kind of match the salaries? I mean, Portland's been thrown out as a Kevin Love trade destination for how long now? Um, like, I don't know. Are you giving up CJ McCollum to bring in? I don't. Uh, ex no, exactly. No, absolutely. That's not. what I'm saying. Like, you're not. So it's like, what? What's Portland giving up to get Kevin Love? You think the Cavs want Hassan Whiteside? Like, no. Uh, with Portland, you could cobble together the money with yeah you could use Whiteside's salary and presumably they're going to get Nurkic back oh, sometime you know soon, what my right? bad I forgot Whiteside's a pending UFA I thought Whiteside had one more year in his contract so that actually does work because it's not like the Cavs are taking on long-term money there yeah so I guess you know what what asset are you attaching to Hassan Whiteside that it, like I guess they could throw a first round pick in there would yeah, they be willing to do that like, like Bazemore's like a $19.2 million expiring contract. They actually have more dead money than I thought. Yeah. I think Whiteside makes more sense as the guy going back because Nurkic is coming back, we think, sometime relatively soon. He has basically said that he is right where he wants to be in terms of his recovery. He said he's pain-free. And once Nurkic does come back, I mean, Whiteside is essentially superfluous. I guess the other side of that is, well, Nurkic is going to come back and really they're going to have to ease him back in. Like, he's not going to be coming back and playing 30 minutes a game right off the bat. So maybe you want to have a center platoon and keep Whiteside in the fold, in which case Bazemore's is the salary that you'd want to send back. Yeah, the other thing too is the guy we literally started this podcast with in Carmelo Anthony is, look, I know you shouldn't be making personnel decisions based on 
Carmelo Anthony's temperament, but do you want to trade for Kevin Love when you kind of made this spectacle of signing Carmelo Anthony midseason? Like, they both need to play the four. Yeah, I don't think that should be a consideration. I don't think it should, but I think it might be for them. Um, I think the bigger consideration for them is just if they bring Love in, that is three guys who you are going to be paying a combined $100 million to over the next three seasons, essentially. In the 2022-2023 season, Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, and Kevin Love will combine for about $110 million. Right. Three years from now. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I think you know there are certain players... Where like, oh, if we can have this three-man core, it doesn't really matter what we pay them. Like, those three guys are going to keep us in championship contention. So you pay them whatever you can. Lillard, McCollum, and Kevin Love, like, is that a championship triumvirate? I would you, don't think would so. Would you even consider that a lock to get out of the first round? Lock? Certainly not. Exactly. And I'm sorry, but if you're committing... I understand you can't ever consider a championship or even a finals appearance a lock. I get that. We know how hard it is and, and the breaks you need to get there. But if you're spending $110 million on a big three, quote-unquote, three years from now, that big three better at least be considered a lock to get past the first round of the playoffs. And I don't even think that this would be. I think you could say that that, that three-man core is going to give you a really strong baseline offensively. Like the... I think you're pretty much guaranteed to have like a top 10 offense with that three-man core. I almost feel like you're guaranteed to but have that with Dame anyway. Maybe so. But also, I think that really caps what you can do defensively if those are your three highest-paid players. and You're putting a lot of pressure on Nurkic. Right, and, and he's coming off a traumatic leg injury, and he's on a really team-friendly contract, and if he can get back to the level he was playing at last season, then maybe this makes a little bit more sense. But without knowing what he's going to look like when he comes back and whether he can shoulder that kind of responsibility defensively, I just don't know. I don't know if the Blazers can really risk it. But maybe, you know, on the other hand, they're like they're already committed to Dame and CJ. They're not really going to have an opportunity to add significant pieces over the next few years. Maybe they just say, screw it. Like, this is kind of our one opportunity to add an impact player that's going to be with us for the next few years. And because we're already so far down the road here, we're already going to be in the luxury tax. You know, why don't we just go for it and see what comes? I, I guess <laughs> it's not a convincing argument, but like, I don't know. I, they're kind of a desperate team right now, so maybe they're desperate enough to make that kind of a move. It's interesting that, like, as we go down the list here, like, there's not really a no-brainer trade candidate this season. You know what I mean? Um, like, even yeah. down the stretch of last season, towards the deadline. Marcus Gasol was a perfect example. <clears throat> People squabbled over whether it was worth it for the Raptors to make that move, but no one was really looking around the league saying, <clears throat> where does Marcus Gasol fit, or does he really make this team better by enough? Like, it was pretty accepted. If you can get Marcus Gasol for the stretch run, like, you make that move. There was a number of other guys last season in that same boat. There usually are every season a handful of guys you can look to and be like, okay, well, this guy's going to move, and it's going to make sense, and it's very easy to find a deal. And this year, the guys that seem to be the prime trade targets... As we've gone on now for whatever it is, like half an hour, it's not very easy to find teams that it makes sense for. It's not very easy to find teams that it's feasible for. So I think it's going to be a very interesting trade season, and maybe some of the guys that end up getting dealt and the trades that do swing the season are ones like we just don't even see coming. I just, yeah, I think it's shaping up to be a pretty quiet trade season. It doesn't seem like Chris Paul is going anywhere. That's where I was going to go next, right? Like Um, even CP. Yeah. Who would be such an obvious candidate for a team like Milwaukee, for example, to completely put them over the hump. Mm. It's like, well, why is OKC getting rid of him? He's been... Chris Paul, and I get, I'd throw Kyle Lowry in this too, but I, it's 2020 and these guys are in their mid-30s and Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry along with Dame have been two of the three best point guards in the world right now. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, the, what those guys are doing at their age and their size... You know, given all the sort of precedent that we have of undersized point guards and what happens to them once they get past the age of 30, it's really remarkable. And the fact that they're doing it at both ends of the floor uh, just makes it that much more impressive. And, I, you know, we, we talked about this last week, but I just think OKC is in such an interesting spot and really might be the team that defines the trade deadline and what it ends up looking like. 
because they do have these players that a lot of teams would value that are just like so easy to fit onto any type of roster. And it's unclear whether they're going to be willing to, to trade them. And, uh, you know, what is it going to take to essentially get OKC to punt on what's been a pretty feel-good season for them, you know, the way that they've played and how they're essentially, I would say they're locked into a playoff spot right now, but I give them a pretty good shot to make it given how they played and, and the separation that they've put between them and the rest of the teams chasing them. Yeah, and the flip side to that is not that I'm, you know, at all advocating for them to make a short-sighted win-now move because I think it's way too early in their process to do that. But at the same time, when you talk about draft assets and future assets, no one has the stockpile OKC has right now because of the the Paul George and Russell Westbrook trades. So while they have a lot of pieces that other teams would want and they are clearly in position to make future-minded moves, they are also in as almost as good a position as anyone to make win-now type moves because they have the future assets to get rid of. Don't think they'll do it. Well, I, they're in a great spot because they can be competitive in the short term, but they like they don't need to collect assets for no. the long term, right? They're no. already so right. asset rich that yeah, they can ride this out. They can ride out this entire window with Chris Paul. I think Gallo is a different story because he is an impending free agent. Yeah, so I think they have to look at that and be like, all right, are we realistically going to re-sign this guy? And is it worth it to hold on to him for what is? probably going to be a one-and-done playoff run. With Chris Paul, it's like, you know, they're going to have not only future opportunities to potentially trade him, but future opportunities to be a competitive team with him in the fold. So I, I think it makes all kind of sense for them to see where this thing can go with him, you know, leading the roster. But with Gallo, I think it's a, a more interesting conversation because yeah. the, the clock is ticking on that front. And that's fair, but but yeah, like I said, when you look at the stockpile of assets they have, like who's to say that they don't just ride out this season and then maybe turn some of those assets into an impact player going into next season? And now you've got Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis Alexander, maybe still Steven Adams, and another impact player, and all of a sudden, like you're a real player in the West. Yeah, uh, it just, I mean, that I guess depends on how long this Chris Paul window can right. stay open for. Uh, which is an open question for sure. Um, so far, he's managed to beat back Father Time. He, I think he's a different player than he used to be. Uh, he's not quite as devastating toying with bigs on switches. He's certainly not getting to the rim nearly as much as he used to. He doesn't get to the free throw line as much as he used to, but there are skills that have a lot of staying power there with him. Like he gets ball- to his spot in the mid-range, and then it's an automatic bucket. Yeah. And, you know, the ball handling is not going anywhere. The intelligence is not going anywhere. He's going to remain one of the best passers in the league. He has the skill, these skills that are going to continue to make him effective, I think, for, you know, a few years to come. But as far as him being an all-star caliber point guard, I don't know how much longer that can last. And that's probably part of their calculation as well. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's talk about another point guard, one who hasn't played an awful lot this season. That's Kyrie Irving, who has had what was called a shoulder impingement, is now being described as bursitis. He has played just 11 games, hasn't played since November. And there's now talk of him potentially having surgery and shutting it down for the year. We had an interesting conversation off air yesterday about this. Do you want to share your hot take with our listeners? Yeah, I think I've I think I've said this before, but I kind of think Kyrie Irving's a fraud. <laughs> Add him to the list. Okay. I... Who else is on the list? We got John Wall. Yeah. Anybody else make the cut? A bunch of guys have been called frauds by me over the course of time, and and I don't take that word lightly. I, I you know I reserve it for a time when I really have to believe a guy has become fraudulent. And I've gone on, you know, in other episodes before about how I could just never trust Kyrie Irving on my team because the guy thinks the, the Earth is flat. And I'm like, 
you know, I, I just can't. But I've never doubted his ability and I still don't doubt his ability. But at what point, at what point do you just look at the facts, look at the patterns and realize that his talent alone no longer overshadows just all of the headaches that seem to come with Kyrie Irving. And I'm not, I'm in no way insinuating like this injury is not legit. He's probably, he's probably hurt. Yeah. And can't play right now. But the reporting that came out early in the season about how certain things were already starting to bubble up with Kyrie Irving. That like random thing about he didn't want to take his hat off in that picture. And he's like moody and sulky. And I get it. He's human. A lot of people are like that. But man, this is a very high stakes business. And if you can't trust one of the guys you're paying to be a franchise type player, to be a consistent presence, whether it's on the court or off the court, a consistent positive presence for your franchise, then I just don't think he's, he's worth having around at all. And I kind of half-jokingly floated the question to you yesterday of, do you think there's a possibility that Kyrie Irving doesn't play another game for the Nets? And again, it was a half-joke. I don't think that's actually the case. But I will say this, or I'll pose this question. If in some alternate reality, in some batshit crazy stuff happens between now and next season, for whatever reason, Kyrie finds himself in the trade bucket. Don't think it'll happen, but imagine it does. Just imagine. Indulge me. Um, I don't think there's a long line of executives anymore that would be fighting over themselves to trade for Kyrie Irving. It's, yeah, I mean, that... I think that line have, has probably gotten shorter over the last couple of years. Much shorter. I think we've gotten to a point where, as much as I joke about it on a podcast. But are you. So, in the context of what he's dealing with right now and what the Nets are dealing with right now, are you talking about his injury history and the fact that he's struggled to stay on the floor? Injury history, temperament history, history as a teammate, but history but of his teams also, performing. No worse, and if not better, without him than with him. Mm -hmm. I think when you start adding everything up, it is very fair to ask the question, in terms of on-court impact, is Kyrie a fraud? <laughs> I think no. And I think, you know, as much, as much talk as there was about the Celtics and how they performed in his injury absences the last two years, they were still better with him on the floor than with him off. I don't know how to quantify the impact that his temperament had on that team, the cloud that his impending free agency seemed to cast over that season, the just sort of awkward attempts at public leadership uh, that, that maybe led to some disillusionment inside that locker room. I don't know how to quantify that, and I just can't speak intelligently on the matter because I don't know. I'm not inside that locker room and I don't know what kind of effect that had on his teammates. And I don't know how much the difference between the Celtics last year and this year has to do with his departure and Kemba Walker's arrival compared to, say, Gordon Hayward looking more like himself and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown both taking significant steps forward. And the other thing I'll say is that the last time that we saw him playing the role of number two option, he was spectacular. He was turning the tide of the NBA Finals in 2016 and leading to, you know, one of the great upsets in NBA history, one of the most memorable championships in NBA history, hitting one of the most memorable shots in NBA history. He was a brilliant Robin to LeBron's Batman. That will also have been four years ago by the time the playoffs were But around. he hasn't played that role since then. And the Nets didn't bring him in to be a number one option. And that's the thing. And when you're talking about, you know, are we ever going to see him play another game for the Nets? Well, he and Kevin Durant made this decision together. Right. That, again, that question was more <laughs> in jest and more to, to bring about the question of like how many teams and executives would actually be breaking the door down to trade for Kyrie Irving. I don't think many. I, I, again, I, I'm I still not even... think I still think a lot, given his talent, given that he's still fairly young. And I, the, the injury stuff is starting to get a bit scary. Right, and it's not it, to me, it's not just the injury stuff. It's not just the temperament. It's not just the teammate stuff. When I like throw the word fraud out there in terms of his impact on an organization and on winning, it's not just one of those things. Because as you mentioned, we can't quantify that stuff. Mm -hmm. None of us can. But when you add it all up, that's what I'm saying. Like, Say he doesn't play another game this season because of this injury. 
through nine seasons, he will then have missed an average of 22-plus games per season. And when you look at all that, that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're talking about max players, all that we know about Kyrie Irving, not what, you know, behind the scenes, just what we know and the reports that have come out about the teammate stuff, just everything. Throw it all in the mix. We got to make our own conclusions. Add to the fact you're probably know he's going to miss 20 to 25 games a season. And then ask yourself, like, is Kyrie Irving then worth $30 million, whatever it is, as a max player in the NBA? I don't, I think the answer is no. Given all that we know. If you guaranteed me he plays 80 games, sure. But like, this isn't Kawhi Leonard, you know, where you can, you can tell me he's going to only play 60 games, but you'll be in the playoffs. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. It's Kawhi Leonard. I think if you have a chance to go into the playoffs with a healthy Kyrie Irving and a healthy Kevin Durant, then you're in pretty good shape. I don't and know if we'll ever see that happen. It's possible. And, I, you know, Kevin Durant is coming back from an injury that has destroyed careers. Kyrie Irving is, you know, continues to add to a laundry list of injuries that have sidelined him for, like you said, you know, at least 20-plus games for the last three years. Um, Man, even not just the last three years, like his career. Yeah. Like I said, it'll be an av- he'll have missed an average of 22 games a year by the end of this season. So... I do, you know, think it's fair to wonder at this point, will we ever see the Nets kind of hit their ceiling or or their perceived ceiling, I guess, with the two guys that they memorably brought in in the summer. And I think it's possible that we don't. Like I think it's possible that Durant is just never the player that he was before he got hurt. I still think that even coming off of that injury, it's kind of like we were talking about with Chris Paul. Like with Durant, there is just so much bankable, age-proof skill there. And like between his size and the way that he's able to shoot, I, I just, it's like you look at sort of the tail end of Dirk Nowitzki's prime, and like I don't see why Kevin Durant can't basically do that for the next four or five years even coming back from an Achilles injury that might sap a lot of his explosiveness. So I think you're still looking at at least like a top 15 player. And Kyrie Irving at his best, to me, is kind of in that same range. You know, top 20, top 15 player. But I don't know if two top 15 players is exactly what the Nets thought they were getting when they made that huge splash in free agency. And I don't know if we're ever going to really see this team as like a full-fledged championship contender during the KD Kyrie era. I think I'm I'm willing to kind of like reserve judgment until we actually see what Durant looks like and and see what these two guys look like on the court together. And like I said, I think Kyrie is a dynamite number 2. It's just the question is like can Kevin Durant be the kind of number 1 that LeBron James was? And and that's that's my bigger concern right now than whether Kyrie Irving is a fraud. <laughs> Um, all right, but let's move on and just close the show with this because we have spent more or less this entire episode talking about some pretty bleak injury news. Why don't we talk about some positive injury news, which is that Zion Williamson has reportedly progressed to doing five-on-five work in practice, is nearing a return to game action, and he is going to be joining a Pelicans team that is playing quite well right now, has made up some ground in the playoff race, now sits... Four games out and five in the loss column from the eighth seed and has one of, if not the easiest remaining schedules in the Western Conference. Given all that, and and if you look at the projection systems, whether it's ESPN or 538, they really like the Pelicans' chances of making a second half push and, and nabbing that final playoff spot. Which, by the way, would create an AD versus Pelicans first round matchup. Which would be just unbelievable. Yeah. Again, like we talked last week about how even though it seems, like you say they're four games out and that seems manageable, it's more the number of teams that they would have to leapfrog that makes it such a challenge. I think given their remaining schedule and the fact that they are looking like they're about to add Zion back into the mix, given the fact that Brandon Ingram continues to play spectacular basketball, certainly smashing my expectations for him. I've not really been a fan of his game in the past and not exactly been an Ingram optimist I think they've got a pretty decent chance of actually ripping off a run that gets them there 
What are your thoughts about Zion's potential return? What it's going to look like for the Pelicans? How they might optimize him? And what the second half might look like for this team? I just think if you're the Pelicans, you have to be thrilled right now. They had an awful start to the season. They had all these injuries. Obviously, with Zion, you know, as the headliner, Gentry on the hot seat. Gentry on the hot seat. I think they were seven and twenty. I want to say at one point or seven nineteen. Like, I think they were seven and twenty three. There you go. Yeah. In any other year, season's over. Start thinking of next year. Like, just everything falls apart. This year with the strange opportunity the West presents, you rip off one streak or you have a good month, and all of a sudden they're back in the race. As you mentioned, most projection systems now have them as the favorite to get in the playoffs as the eight seed. Zion's coming back to a team that's still in the mix. Brandon Ingram, you know, I've been a fan of him all season now. Like, I, I think you just have to be a believer in what he's done. Yeah, he's still not a great defender, and there are still deficiencies in his game. But, you know, the Pelicans don't expect him to be a, the franchise. That's what Zion is here for. And if you just look at Brandon Ingram as a scorer, as an offensive player, he's had a fantastic season. This is not the case of a looter in the riot. This is a guy who's been wildly efficient on a high usage on a team where most nights he does not have a lot of options to defer to. So defenses are keying in on him, and he is still finding a way against defenses keying in on him with the usage he's had to be wildly efficient. And I think, you know, at some point you just have to believe in that. Like, this is a, a very good offensive player who might, you know, tap out as a, a solid number two at worst number three guy on a contending team. And I think that's great. If, if you have found that in Brandon Ingram, you're laughing if you're the Pelicans. And Zion is anywhere near as good as you think he can be. And then, oh, by the way, Lonzo Ball. I realize I'm about to throw out a four-game Settle sample. Down here. Settle down. Super small sample size. But would you not concede that he has been promising during this positive stretch for the Pelicans. Promising being a relative term. I think this has been some of the best basketball that he's played. Are you not encouraged by what you've seen from Lonzo Ball over the last couple weeks? I'll say this. I'm encouraged by the fact that he is shooting 36.6% from three on 6.3 attempts per game. On the season. And then the last four games, he's taken nine attempts from three a game. The fact that he seems to be a viable three-point shooter is definitely a huge development. I still see a lot of red flags. Inside the arc, he's still fairly inefficient, 46% from two-point range. He doesn't get to the rim enough, in my opinion. He still shies away from contact, barely gets to the free-throw line at all. And when he does get to the free-throw line, he's shooting 51%, which is probably part of the reason that he doesn't really likes to take contact and isn't looking to get to the rim all that much. And that's an issue that we've seen with a lot of different players from Rajon Rondo to Ben Simmons, like point guards who don't shoot well from the free throw line. It hampers their efficiency because they don't look to attack as much because getting to the free throw line for them isn't the sort of efficient scoring proposition that it is for a lot of other players. I'm a little bit concerned about that. Uh, he's still a little bit turnover prone. I know like he's an excellent passer and he just has like great feel in general. The defense, I think, again, this is another guy like Ingram who ought to have all the tools to be an impact defender and just oftentimes, especially off the ball as a help defender, I just don't see him making impact plays. And obviously the Pelicans as a whole have been really disappointing defensively this season. I think the versatility that Lonzo brings, and like in theory, the fact that he could defend positions one through three capably makes him a nice piece because he just gives you that sort of lineup and matchup flexibility. I just don't think I've seen that reflected necessarily in his play so far. But yeah, like there, there have been some encouraging signs as well. And I think the big question for me now is with Zion coming back and a guy that again, isn't really going to space the floor for you. How does all of this fit together? It was a question that I had coming into the season. Those concerns were assuaged a bit in the preseason because they did find so many creative ways to get Zion the ball like going downhill in the half court. But I'm still a little bit concerned about how it's all going to work when he comes back and whether, you know, you like to think of it as, oh, this team's playing well and think about adding this great player to this mix. It doesn't, really work out that way in the sense of like you add x to y and get z you right. know what i mean like a lot of the times it's like 
players cannibalize each other. Right. You could add and, X to Y and end up with a letter you didn't even know existed and <laughs> yeah. it was not optimal. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like it's it's always a little bit different, and so I, I guess I have to see what it looks like. And and also, you know, Derek Favors has been a big part, I think, of their success recently, and like having him as a stabilizer in the middle has, I think, been pretty crucial for their defense. I don't know if like a Favors. Zion front court can really work. I'm curious to see whether Zion helps more at the offensive end or at the defensive end because I think the defensive end right now is where the Pelicans need more help. Just a lot of unanswered questions. I'm super, super excited to see him get on the court and finally play some meaningful NBA games, but I'm not necessarily ready to say that like this is going to launch them into playoff contention. No, I agree with that completely. I will say, though, it's pretty astounding. And again, you just have to be thrilled if you're a Pelicans fan that that they're still in the mix. That they're even still in the mix, right? And, and Forget the projection system. The fact that they're even going to be playing meaningful basketball, it seems, when Zion gets back, is crazy. The last Lonzo thing I'll mention is, I, I mentioned the four-game sample size I was going to read out. It was 23.8 points, 8 assists, 6.5 rebounds, 1.5 steals on 54, 46, 57 shooting. He's still a terrible free-throw shooter. The rebounds, the assists, it seems like we know that's all part of his game. Quite frankly, even me who thought he would be in the mix for most improved player this season, never imagined he would have a four-game stretch where he averaged almost 24 points a game. And that's where I said, like, I just can't deny the fact that I'm impressed by it because I didn't think he had this type of scoring ability at all. And I'm not talking in a one-game sample, like, two-game. To do that over a four-game sample, like, there is something there that can be tapped into. And I think that has to be promising. Yeah, sure. For the Pels. For sure. Um, And... I think, you know, like I said at the start of the season, it's going to be in a lot of ways contingent on what he can do when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. And, you know, we, like I said, he's shooting 36 plus percent from three on a high volume of attempts, but defenses still aren't really respecting that three point shot. And a lot of times that is the more important factor. And it doesn't necessarily matter if you're shooting 36% on wide open threes if defenders are still straying 20 feet off of you to clog the lane. And I think, you know, if you're a 34% shooter who's magnetizing defenders out on the perimeter, that's usually more important than being a 37% shooter who defenses are completely ignoring out there. So that, I think, is still yet to come. And it's just kind of like keeping him engaged as a guy who's moving around without the ball, who's cutting who's finding ways to make himself useful when it's Ingram and Zion who are kind of taking the reins of the offense. Yeah, the Pelicans are 12 and 25 right now. So the 538 projection of 38 and 44 would mean they have to go 26 and 19 the rest of the way. I personally don't trust them to do that, even as, as much as we've said about them and everything uh, we just praised about their second half of the season that could go right. I just don't think you can bank on that. Um, there'll be bumps in the road still. And, you know, you can't expect them to just stay healthy now the rest of the yeah. way. Things will happen. And Again, I just think if they if they can even get to a point where they're playing meaningful basketball and they're in the playoff race in like late March, early April, I, I think you just have to take that and be thrilled with it. I think Derek Favors could wind up being a pretty interesting trade chip as well. Yeah. Because he is probably going to come at a lower acquisition cost than somebody like Drummond. And, again, is a, an expiring contract, so... You know, as somebody that you can go out and get and just basically have stabilized your front line for the remainder of the season, if, say, you are a team like the Celtics or like the Clippers looking for a player like that, I think you can convince yourself that putting, you know, sort of like a middling asset on the table for that guy is going to be worth your while. And for the Pelicans, who, you know, are in a similar situation, I guess, to OKC with Gallo, where it's like, yeah, you could make a playoff push this season. But here's a guy on an uh, expiring contract who is not necessarily going to be part of your core going forward. Do you get what you can for him now and just sort of continue building toward the future? Because I think the Pelicans are going to have a lot of positives to take away from this season, whether they make the playoffs or not. In spite of how disappointing they've been in a lot of different ways, the fact that Ingram now appears to be this guy who can give you efficient scoring on 30% usage, who suddenly looks like an absolute ace shooter, not only as a spot-up guy, but somebody who's shooting off the dribble, shooting on the move, you know, coming off of handoffs. That's just monumental. And not only that, but like 
I was looking at this thinking like Ingram and Zion are not going to be a good fit together. But if Ingram is just this guy, then suddenly that is not true at all. Suddenly they look like a pretty great fit together. And I don't know if Lonzo is the point guard who can basically tie all of that together. You know, and I don't know if they see Drew Holiday as that guy who's going to be there long term. But like, we didn't even talk about Drew them after that bad start to the season. He's been pretty damn lights out the last little while. Yeah, he has been. I'm still 51 percent true shooting this season, which, which isn't is great. But so, I think a lot of that is the early season slump um, he was in. Yeah, but I think uh, I think there uh, there are going to be a lot of positives to take away from the season for the Pelicans, and they're going to have a lot of optimism looking toward the future. So obviously, super excited to see Zion get out there and to see what the rest of the season looks like for them. I will say, too, like you mentioned whether Lonzo can be that kind of point guard that ties it all together. I do think his skill set screams like glue guy. You know, that as he gets older, is that like veteran type glue guy as a point guard. He'll probably never be the star some envisioned for him, but I do think he has the type of skill set that can kind of glue things together for a team that has better stars. I think on this roster, though, that that role for him profiles more as like a sixth man type right. of role as somebody who's part of their starting unit, which, which is fine. And, and it's not like the Pelicans have to worry about him being a quote-unquote bust. They're not the team that took him second overall. And because they seem to have gotten a bona fide star in Ingram in the Anthony Davis trade, along with the draft capital that they got, I don't think they have to look at it and say, oh, Lonzo Ball's a disappointment. Like, no. they got their blue chipper in the Davis trade, and anything they get from Lonzo is essentially just gravy. If Lonzo Ball turns into a consistently slightly above average rotation player for the Pelicans long term and Ingram is what he looks like he is you're thrilled with that yeah all right I think we can leave off there uh we've covered a lot of injury news trade possibilities and uh you know the continued chase for that final playoff spot in the Western Conference so that's going to do it for our first episode of 2020 for Joseph Cacharo I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to you guys next week.